0: in the second
1: uh, This is a longer paper than I can really present, so we've done some uh, thinking about cuts here. But I hope it hasn't been cut to ribbons, I don't think so. Uh, The uh, title of this paper is uh, Obama Nation, Obama Nation, Uh, The Art of Kara Walker. And uh, I'm not going to read the introduction, which is really about right-wing politics in America at the moment, which if you don't know about it, ought to scare you. Uh, the uh, uh, racial tensions in America are at a fever pitch uh, you've got an ex-vice presidential candidate going to something called Tea Party uh, uh, assemblies taxed enough already is what T stands for and uh, these people are coming with guns and she's got a website with crosshairs on her political enemies and she's claiming that she's not inciting people to take those guns and shoot those folks when clearly she is that's the kind of tension we're dealing with in the US at the moment uh, When you throw in the economic instability and, and now this business in the <coughs> Gulf uh, things are getting uh, quite edgy uh, over there <coughs> the introduction deals with the question of abomination, abomination the word abomination with an A uh, is a, a complex word uh, that deals with racial politics in America and it relates to the uh, abolitionist movement in the 19th century. Um, It's used by uh, Southerners uh, who are uh, anti-black in order to suggest that blacks are abominable, Uh, and it's a a general theme that runs through this uh, paper. And uh, I'll just begin in my second section. So at the end of this paper, I'm going to be addressing some of Jacques Derrida's last seminar on the beast and the sovereign. To prepare us for some of that discussion, I need to discuss a rather typical sort of political discourse in which beasts replace humans, something that seems benign in Aesop, but that takes on an obscene dimension today when people begin photoshopping Obama as some sort of hideous-looking monkey. And here I'll go to my first uh, image. We'll see now if that comes up. It's pretty obscene, didn't it? It's kind of thing the Nazis were up to in the 30s. Uh, What are we to make of this circulation of what everyone knows to be a traditional racial insult whereby whites depict blacks as apes and monkeys, in other words, as merely humanoid and as such, not fully human and hence abominable? Certainly such images constitute a form of hate speech that in this day and age ought to be considered unacceptable. And what I want to argue is that such images mark a limit of the political even as they try to advance themselves as a political statement. In this respect, consider the following image of a kindly-looking, gray-haired woman at a tea party rally, hold, holding a stuffed monkey and a sign that reads "Send Obama back to Kenya." Let's see if we can get this next one up here. There you go. It's not a great image. I'm sorry. It's saying I don't know if I can, can I make it a little bigger. Get the idea of it, though. <clears throat> this is a more rhetorical example, and therefore one that appears more politically embedded within political discourse. But in fact, it too marks a limit of the political. Taken by itself, the woman's statement alludes to the so-called birther movement. Have you heard of that? The birther movement. That denies Obama as an American citizen. Because his father is Kenyan and because Obama has close relatives living in Kenya, nationalists have been saying that his place of origin is Kenya and that he should hold office there, not in the United States, if he wants to be a politician. The birthers claim that because Obama is not a legitimate political officeholder, an abominable miscarriage of justice has occurred. In addition, a woman stuffed monkey inflects his complaint by introducing the white supremacist idea that African Americans, Obama among them, are not 100% human, that this makes them abominable, and that therefore they should be sent back to Africa. Alarming to many people on the extreme right in the United States, are the abominable things that could happen to the security and moral fabric of the United States if subhumans are put in charge. This whole thing with the oil spill inflects this again, because you have the whole autobus of the tar baby in the 19th century. Especially annoying is that these sorts of propositions are being invoked as if they were common knowledge that is objectively self-evident, even though they are so ridiculous that they reveal the limits of objectivity if not a gap in shared reality that cannot be bridged, as Ernesto Laclau and Chantal Mouffe have pointed out, there is a major difference between social political opposition and antagonism. These are the two terms: opposition versus antagonism. Because an opposition can be debated within a rational framework of positions and counterpositions that can claim considerable legitimacy despite their ideological or philosophical differences, whereas an antagonism lacks various objective relations as well as a rational, discursive field for debate. Antagonism points to relations, quote, wherein the limits of every objectivity are shown, unquote. But two, quote, antagonism is the experience of the limit of the social, unquote. This is what racism tries to push at, the limit of the social, which is why racist and nationalist propositions inherently attempt to restrict the social, which is their pragmatic function the pragmatic function of racist discourse of hate speech is to restrict the social and yet that pragmatism cannot justify itself politically because the statements upon which it relies lack objectivity and in its place introduce a term that will become significant for us much later but which in this case speaks to stupidity or stupefaction as a limit that ruptures the political the stupidity that in the case above is given an image in the form of an animal Think about Nazi hate speech of the 30s, the sense of, of the, kind of these goon squads and the stupidity of it and how unaddressable that was. When the American mainstream media used the picture of the woman and her stuffed monkey to humiliate the Republicans by exposing certain of their protesters as gross embarrassments, the effect of such an exposure was to reveal a political breakdown if only because such protesters are not willing to be part of a politics of shared reality that is based upon facts upon which everyone ought to agree. For example, that the President of the United States is an American citizen, that he's not the Antichrist, which 25% of Republicans believe he is, in a religious sense, literally. Think about that, how many millions of people are buying into this idea. That he is not an abominable ape, some sort of political King Kong, but but a human being and so on. In short, a limit of the political is reached when rational and even semi-rational debates that are part of the public political pro- process of contestation are derailed by irrational appeals to abomination, e.g., the signs to say Obama-nation, that cannot be rectified by an appeal to reason, empirical proof, or upon authority of sound education. That gap between the irrational and the irrational marks a limit at which communication not only has to break down, but in which a certain dereliction of thinking has occurred, that one either ignores because it's crazy, or that one castigates and shames in the hopes of forcing people to re-enter a rational public debate. This is what CNN is trying to do in the U.S. right now. To little effect, Fox News, which is full of this irrationalism, has 34 million viewers. CNN has like 500,000. Insofar as politics requires sufficient objectification in order for people to come to rational agreements, antagonism reveals a limit beyond which the political cannot really go. Jacques Lacan, who always makes interesting asides, notes in his seminar on Anxiety that people are sometimes derelict in a way that becomes intolerable and abominable for another and that this is done on purpose in order to impose a limit on another that is both unintelligible and unbearable. you think again of those Nazi actions in, in, in Berlin in 1933 against Jews intolerable and unbearable racism is the imposition of that kind of limit one that is intended to be intolerable if only because it is so entirely unreasonable and arbitrary and because one cannot speak to it intelligently by which is meant speak to it in a way that will make the racist realize that he or she is derelict in terms of thinking This limit, which is akin to a sort of madness experienced by both the sadist and the victim, which is Lacan's context, cannot be assimilated within a political process curbed by a reality principle, something that speaks to an antagonism that has to get its pound of flesh by other means, which is why, at the end of the day, racists resort to violence in order to get what they want, a stupefying violence that is inherent within the antagonism which is hate speech itself. Move on to my next section. You all see that? Does that work? <coughs> Kara Walker is an African American artist whose work may find many find to be obscene, immoral, and politically incorrect. From an Aristotelian perspective, one might well claim that the material cause of her art is hate speech itself. Yet she has already been given a million dollar award by the MacArthur Foundation, and her work has been shown internationally in major galleries that take modern among them. Whereas it could be argued that artists like Jeff Koons and Annette Messager have more range, or that artists like Eva Hesse have more sophistication relative to the history of art, The fact is that Walker's representations are historically inflammatory, if not explosive in a way that makes other political art pale by comparison. The uh, title of this, by the way, is uh, My uh, Compliment, My Enemy, My Oppressor, My Love, which was shown at the Whitney in 2007. Moreover, given the image politics in America today, one has to admit that her work has been extremely pressing and that it speaks to an appalling image repertoire that is at once in the past and the future, an image repertoire always already to come that has supposedly been long forgotten. Walker's obscene (coughs) racialized images are akin to what Derrida once called specters, images returning from the past that have a visor effect in that they screen the gaze. As obscene, these images neither look nor can be adequately adequately looked upon. Something that speaks to their abominability and damnability in the sense that these images represent those who are execrated and condemned and as such belong to some sort of shadowing other world of defilement. a sort of negative of the world everyone usually associates with the American life of the 19th century at least as it is commonly represented. Uh, there's a great deal of parody going on here and one of the passages we're, we're cutting is one about Mark Twain Life on the Mississippi where he talks about uh, the, the influence of Sir Walter Scott on Southern culture and, and, and uh, its, its various idioms. <clears throat> and she's uh, 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 satirizing quite a bit of that. Naturally, it's tempting to think of Walker's depictions as a sort of looking glass or shadow world of the historical reality that was American slavery. And not surprisingly, quite a bit of commentary has been given to Walker's appropriation of the art of making silhouettes, ascribed to Johann Caspar Lavater and the fact that this imitates a craft that may well have been accessible to 19th century African-American artists. The 19th century use of silhouette portraiture, if we can call it that, was a rationally abstracted, sedated decorative art in which the outline of someone's physiognomy was thought to capture the essence of the person, all the while evoking a medium like the classical frieze in which classical profiles are given a heroic past. Or cast, rather. This static dimension to Walker's art speaks to what Homi Baba calls the fixity of the stereotype that stands in opposition to the excess of the content. I think that's very strong in her work. It's almost understated stereotypes, but the content seems to be very, very resonant and active in, in her uh, uh, depictions which to recall my remark about the limit of the political speaks to the imposition of a limit, at once arbitrary and unreasonable, that aims at going beyond what another can hear. The stereotype, therefore, is particularly excessive in that it is superimposed on physical slavery, which is already so very intolerable. Because Carol Walker's content is so explicitly focused on the topic of race relations between whites and blacks, it comes as no surprise that critics have looked at her work mainly in terms of sociological content, Analysis, which necessarily contextualizes the work within American history and culture. Yet there is something in the excess of your stereotypes that reminds me of work by a European artist one might not immediately associate with Walker, associate <coughs> an association that occurs the moment we remind ourselves that Walker's panoramas are a theater of cruelty, the kind that Antonin Artaud was t- talking about in some of his writings when he spoke of a theater that was unflinchingly dedicated to the expression of raw experience, no matter how painful or unrepresentable. I'll just show you another image of, of Walker's. Let's see if you've looked at this for a while. Uh, she, the, the theme of falling bodies uh, turns up in work quite a bit. The emancipation is a fall. In Walker, this appears to be, <coughs> this unrepresentability, appears to be addressed in terms of putting all the figures under erasure, of making them spectral in the Deridian sense of being visored. But the cutouts are also akin to the double that Artaud famously invoked in Artaud le Moment, and that the double is seen as an eternal ghost with strong effective powers, a ghost or shadow that manifests life in all its elemental rawness, as what Artaud called a plague, that in the context of Walker's art speaks directly to racism as an infliction of some sort of disease upon a people who were unable to see it coming and who could do nothing about it. That plague furthermore figures the abominable, which is to say the institution of slavery as such. It's helpful to recall that Artaud himself was a slave to something he couldn't rid himself of, namely his mental illness, which already at a young age he had experienced as an appropriative force that had stolen his mind and that had made it difficult for him to think. Whereas Descartes could assume that all we have—that <coughs> we all have a cogito that can say, I think, therefore I am, Artaud was living out a life in which the cogito belongs to another, and one therefore has to think, knowing full well that one's cogito isn't one's own entirely, but appears abominably as one's double, as Artaud le momo. Here's a text by him, briefly. Me, nothing, nothing because I, I am there, I'm there, and it is life that rolls its obscene there. In the opening sentence to an essay on Artaud, the American poet Clayton Eshelman writes, quote, Antonine Artaud is one of the greatest examples in art of the imaginative retrieval of a life that is beyond repair. Unquote. That opened up a lot for me, that statement. Uh, this, this idea of retroactively trying to resuscitate something that's beyond repair. Our tomb no longer exists as anything more than a life whose proper name is a mark for some sort of abyss in which shadowy doubles make themselves known. This is the Momo who rises out of the ashes of electroshock, of a long hospitalization at Rode that everyone today would have to agree was an infernal experience that speaks to a cruelty and inhumanity not entirely so alien to the kind of thing Walker is re- representing in her work. In making the connection with Artaud's Theater of Cruelty, I'm trying to detach Walker's art from its usual cliched status as a leftist politics of contestation in which American hypocrisy is exposed and a countercultural history put in place that enables the return of the repressed. I'm not saying Walker cannot be read this way. However, I am saying that there is theater of cruelty at work in her panoramas that are so excessive that I'm not convinced that any politics of moral rectitude will be able to contain... And sanitize their spillage. This is underscored by the fact that critics generally ignore that the excessiveness is so massive that one has to consider it counterproductive, even in politically contestatory terms, given that there is an appearance of the racially and sexually obscene as what Sartre once termed the practical inert, a material fact of slavery that exists in a state of mere thinghood which is to say, as a form of materialism that concerns the reproduction of labor in its most physical, concrete sense. Sartre saw the practical inert in terms of an empty detachment of formal reality, something that recalls Homi Baba's point about the stereotype being static, let's even say stubborn in its ipsaity. I'll come back to the stubbornness later. This may explain the southerner's penchant for those decorative silhouettes inherited from 18th century neoclassicism. In Walker's art, however, this empty detachment signifies the obscenity or abomination of the material facticity of slavery, which presupposes that the slave is not a human being, but more like an object, perhaps even a shadow, that nothing Artaud spoke of that is merely there and that has life. As he put it above, it is life that rolls its obscene palm there. C'est la vie qui roule sa pom obscene. I wonder about pom. That could be pom, I suppose. Or maybe even Poland. I'm not sure. Another way of putting this would be to say, in line with Artaud, that the practical inert and the static is the materialization of cruelty itself. A cruelty that casts an umbra in which life itself becomes shadowy, flittering, and secret, a world of gestures and signs. These are shadows cast by the material world in which the slave is trapped, that cruel world of the practical inert in which men and women become shadowy creatures. Presences without much human identity. You can think of those that Holocaust footage, the, those films of of the of the death camps. They have that flickering sense too of these shadowy um, people, human, not human. People as things in themselves. The ombre in Spanish, casting as ombre. There's got to be a relationship between those two words. Speaking of shadow puppets in the Balinese theater, Artaud wrote, "These signs have a precise meaning which impresses us only intuitively." but with enough violence to render useless any translation into logical or discursive language. Artaud's writing about these shadow puppets right in, in Balinese theater. These are the, the shadows. Artaud's remark is directly relevant to Walker's shadow theater in which the violence, that is to say its cruelty, renders useless the translation into logical language. Again, this raises the issue of there being a limit to the political, a limit that is reached at the moment when violence renders logic useless. And the practicality practical inert that is cruelty is shown by way of signs and gestures whose meanings we immediately grasp at the same time that discursivity and logic are surpassed, rendering the shadow world of persecution in which both master and slave are degraded, unspeakable and therefore unaddressable by individuals but even more certainly by decision-making political bodies. And yet, despite all this, the shadow theater's history is largely one of objectifying and ritualizing the difference between good and evil. What Artaud calls Balinese theater is in fact only a small part of a shadow theater tradition in Asia that occurs in China, India, Sri Lanka, and Southeast Asia, in addition to Indonesia where today shadow theater is even to be found on TV, which come to think of it is a sort of shadow theater all by itself. What the critics of Walker have entirely missed is how reminiscent her silhouettes are of shadow puppetry in Asia, in which the shadows result from projecting light onto puppets from behind. As a walker, the narrative material of Asian shadow theater is epic in scale, most usually uh, in the Asian tradition drawn from the Ramayana. We're switching to uh, another section. There came a day, Derrida tells us, when Arto began calling himself Arto Momo. The word Momo affixing itself to the proper name, as it were, some sort of shadow or double gang. The annexation of the word Momo came to Arto as an aleatory coup, an event of singularity that proves to be indivisible, an event of the emergence of Arto le Momo and his coup de tonnerre, his thunderclap. Derrida says that of major interest to him is Artaud's reappropriation of himself as a double that isn't a duplicate of him. That may be quite telling for all this art. A double that contests and advances the technology of cloning and, and of prosthesis, but in other contexts of avatars, reproductions, parasites, succubi, specters, and returning to medicine once more. was Derrida, artificial inseminations. This non-coincidence between Artaud and his double, this momo that attaches itself to Artaud as a supplement that is and isn't his double, will turn up in Artaud's writings as glossolalia, a shadow writing, as speaking of le momo. Derrida, who had a special place in his heart for Artaud, tells us that he had, <clears throat> that in fact, he is, quote, tied to Artaud by a sort of reasoned des- detestation, detestation raisonnée, that, however antipathetic he may be to who, whatever is to be found in Arto, Derrida cannot dissociate himself from Arto's philosophy, ideology, and politics. That was, I think, also true clearly of Heidegger and also of Schmidt, Interestingly enough, that—that's a topic I explored at some length in a book called Heidegger and Derrida, in the Heidegger connection. Being at once attracted to and repelled by Artaud, Derrida explains that this ambivalence is itself une alliance, one that Derrida made with Heidegger, certainly, but also with Schmidt and others, in which love and hate, friendship and enmity were in play. Respect for Artaud, as Derrida called him, cannot be disavowed. One has to take him as une machination, as a social, medical, psychiatric, judicial, policing, ideological machine, as a philosophical-political network, allied with shadowy forces, a force obscure, that reduced his living flesh to a body that was tortured, ripped apart, drugged, and above all electrocuted, all with a nameless suffering, an unnameable passion that left nothing behind but the will to rename and reinvent language. This, Derrida says, is what calls itself Artaud Momo," an entity that is in essence what Artaud himself called la machine de lettre, a pun on the machine of being, We think of Dasein in the Heideggerian sense, and the machine of the letter. It is this machine, attached to Artaud but not of Artaud, that has been left behind after God supposedly had stolen Artaud's body. Le Dieu qui me vole mon corps. It is on account of this maliciousness on the part of God that Artaud hurls blasphemies, obscenities, and maledictions in all directions. You see that's relevant to, to Walker. You get the shadow, but the body has been stolen somehow. It's not there. So here is his, his cursing, Arto's cursing. Yo kutamar toni ta Yo This language which Derrida calls glossopoetique shadows the betis of God, the stupidity of God. Which is to say, God's idiocies and stupidities, but also his animality. Let us recall in this context that no one in Milton's Paradise Lost, including the devils, are of the view that God might actually be stupid, and that therefore some kind of language has to be invented in order to electrocute God so that it can be shocked into reason. Language in our toe, Derrida says, is but the percussion of electrocution. In other words, attempts at illumination, one that is directed at a dieu bête, a phrase that puns on God being at once stupid and animal, the stupid animal that God, therefore, is. Kara Walker's art may seem light years away from the kind of thing we encounter in Artaud, if only because Walker is so deeply embedded in the (laughs) African-American experience. But I don't think one can do much hermeneutical work with her note cards, in the absence of knowing work by figures like Artaud. She does work with note cards where she types, and there are a lot of uh, spelling mistakes in the typing and crossing out and writing over. It looks like someone who's semi-literate is, is writing these note cards. Here's the quote. I make art for black women to wag their finger at. No, no shame. I make art for white boys to feel up their sisters at. No, no shame. I make art for white girls to finger their prissies. No, no shame in that. I make art for artists to fire their furnace. I make art for Kara so that she won't burn us. Uh, and Arto, too, uh, in a lot of the, the writings and some of the images, he used to take cigarettes and burn holes in the papers. Uh, that image of the burning is very significant uh, in relation between these two. Who is the eye in relation to Kara? Are they different? Is the appearance of Kara, the one who will burn us, the appearance of a sort of Kara la Momo. A violent avatar? Who or what speaks when Walker types on note cards? Is this a sort of Ouija board writing? Or is it closer to what Artaud called the machine, a lettre? So I'll give you another uh, quote, some obscene language here. Oh, what was I saying? Dear you, insufferable cunt, you with your black writings, your hungry ghosts, your vengeful heart, why do you insist on tormenting yourself as well as your loved ones with ingratitude? Yours is a peculiar history, yes, the location and time which you inhabit is unusually merciful. You are given chances, opportunities, inches as well as miles, and you take and you take them all and spit and spit in those faces, bite those hands, defecate on heads from your bare branch purge. Something that I haven't yet mentioned about the word le moment is that it is Marseille, Marseille street slime for village idiot. And there may be reason to believe that it also references Momus, the Greek god of mockery. Walker's purposeful misspellings, her editorial fix-ups in pen, her purposeful use of English in a way that strikes one as decidedly illiterate, or at best awkward, all speak to a certain tendency in her to parallel the way in which Artaud courted Bétis. Like Artaud, Walker makes an alliance of sorts with a momo, a doppelganger that seems to take possession of her thinking, or at least part of it at times. Without mincing words, we can say directly that this Momo names the abominable, something that shows itself to be semi literate, uncultivated, blasphemous, and enraged, as if the Momo were closer to being a sort of animal than a sort of person. In an essay on Kara Walker, included in the catalog for an exhibition shown in Hanover, Germany, Unji uh, Joo, she curates for the New Museum in New York City, she's Korean, writes that. These characters recall the continued raw power of the black female in the pornographic plantation fantasy, The Master's Revenge. This function Walker describes as receptacle. She's a black hole, a space defined by the things sucked into her, a, quote, nigger cunt, a sense, an ass, a complication. She is simultaneously subhuman and superhuman, unquote. Hughes' essay ends on the politically correct note, after all that, that Walker's subjectivity <laughs> challenges fantasized depictions of race in America, saying that, quote, Walker unveils the intersections of race and sexual fantasy and the contemporary implications of her body as the lived reality of that fantasy. That's typical American PC lingo. No doubt, everyone can agree her point, but what she clearly misses is the Momo effect, as I shall call it, of the double that can't be a double. The shadow that isn't a shadow, that calls itself a wench, and that has attached itself to Kara Walker, so that not unlike our toe, she turns into a space defined by the thing sucked into her, becoming simultaneously both superhuman and subhuman. In the context with which I began, which was with the various depictions of President Obama as a simian president, we might well be in a position now to see that this too is a sort of Momo effect, in which the superhuman, the president, is savior and the subhuman, the president as beast, come into relation despite the tempered sovereignty of the presidency itself and its executive function as head of state. As some of you know, the last lecture course that Derrida gave was entitled The Beast and the Sovereign, which, like all of Derrida's seminars, seminars radiated, radiated out in so many directions that for my purposes here, it was something of a puzzle to figure out precisely where to enter it. Well, at some point I realized that either we should begin with Paul Celan's perception that art is a marionette, the theme of the marionette occupies quite a bit of Derrida's attention at various points, or with Emmanuel Levinas' equivocation of whether the animal has a face or not. You can see why these two points of entry would be of interest given that Walker's silhouettes are so reminiscent of the marionette, particularly by way of what I've already said about shadow theater. And because these silhouettes lack faces, which from the Levinasian perspective, as mediated by Derrida, suggest they aren't really human. This in turn brings up yet another place of entry with respect to Derrida's mention of a French television program called The Puppet Show, that ran from 1983 to 1995, famous for using animal puppets in the context of political satire. The concept of the program underscores Derrida's main political thesis in The Beast and the Sovereign, namely that the difference between sovereignty and bestiality, and by extension, mastery and stupidity, is radically ambiguous, a point that one can easily see in walkers art. First, let's consider what Derrida has to say about the marionette. Its discussion follows from a lengthy and arduous reading of Lacan's écrit in which Derrida speaks to Lacan's principle that humans respond while animals only react. The marionette, Derrida says, is reactive, for all its actions are but a reaction to the puppeteer who acts. The marionette, as we know, is really but a prosthesis, or as a group, a number of prostheses that show the actions of the controller in a way that is and isn't human, which Derrida says is precisely what makes puppet theater a rather unheimlich experience, which of course recalls Freud's famous uh, discourse on the marionette and Hoffman's The Sandman. If the puppet is inhuman, a mere thing, it is still endowed with human qualities by way of a controller's skillful actions, which, if they are highly competent, can make us feel at home with what is in fact quite alien, so that at some point we momentarily forget the marionette is not human. But by their very nature of being artificial devices, the non-human qualities of, say, wooden marionettes make themselves very evident to us so that what we see is in fact an incompetent or bent, that is stupid or silly translation, of the puppeteer's actions, something that keeps breaking through the illusion of real life. According to Derrida, the puppeteer is the master or sovereign, the one who responds to what is happening and to what he is doing, whereas the puppet is the vet, the one who is silly, stupid, and awkward, and who is really quite literally a beast too, (coughs) in theatre like the Babette Show. But but if that's true isn't it also the case that this distinction between sovereignty and animal stupidity succumbs as well to the logical aporias of la différence the two get sort of indicated in each other you may see what I'm leading up to in the case of Walker's silhouettes namely that what we have there is some sort of world once human and bestial in which the difference between the human and the animal is let's even say for the sake of an argument I don't have the time to make today deconstructed Walker's silhouettes are prostheses that constitute the apparent difference between sovereignty and bestiality, mastery and slavery, but also between the artist and the silhouette as marionette, something that requires what Derrida is thinking of in terms of marionette theater, that animal-becoming apparatus which has some affinity with what in Cambodia's shadow theater even begins with the psychomachia of the monkeys, a fight that divides them into conquerors and defeated, those who dictate and those who follow. This kind of shadow puppetry in Cambodia has this sort of prelude in which uh, there is this this kind of battle between forces of good and evil in the form of monkeys. Hence the very appearance of the marionette, which has much to do with the introduction of violence, introduces the politics of leaders and followers, masters and slaves, or practicers and the practical and Quote, and what if Betis alone had, as its distinctive feature, stubbornness, stubborn obstinacy, the conatus of a perseverance of being. Unquote. That's Derrida. Derrida is thinking here of, and here is a quote, uh, fairly unintelligible. I'm sorry to say, I think it's going to need some retranslation, but I'll quote it anyway. Derrida uh, is think, Derrida's thinking here of quote, what in the head gets into its head to continue to be to be what that is, self-identically, without thinking of anything else. To want perseverance of essence obstinately to want the essence of the only thing that exists without concept, namely individual existence, but individual existence insofar as it posits, posits itself and reposits itself with stubborn obstinacy and pig-headedness without concept, I think Peggy had trouble there Uh, translating that. In this passage, Derrida is speaking of the marionette's betise, of what it gets into its head in order to continue being the stupid machine or thing that it is, a thought that presupposes a transference of some kind of psyche from the puppeteer to the puppet by way of making the puppet repeat its stupidity, its betise, that of the puppet but also of the puppeteer, an undecidable point of differentiation already as if the puppet had gotten the idea into its head that through obstinacy it can be the thing that it is, in essence. That's what Derrida was talking about in that passage. This is possible only because the puppet is, in fact, the prosthesis of the puppeteer, in the same way that writing is the prosthesis of the one who speaks. A machine a letter as Artaud might have said, that attaches itself to the person as if it were its momo, its idiotic double, which in the case of the marionettes, but also of Walker's silhouettes, speaks to a whole theatrics of the double, a theatrics perseverated within the word momo itself, a word that might just as well keep repeating the same syllable over and over again, momo, 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 Artaud recalled had the idea that God or some malign spirit had stolen his body from him and that all that was left to him was his double. Hence, Artaud le Momo. I don't know, <clears throat> Hence, Artaud le Momo. And in case we're just now noticing it, the syllable MO in French could be mistaken for the noun MO, M O T, le mot. The word. Similarly, Walker's silhouettes are her Momo, her prosthetic doubles if not visual words that display by means of obstinate repetition a considerable amount of they of silliness, childishness, stupidity if not also of a behavior that has its traits of bestiality in which the silhouettes are eating their mare smoking corn cobs while popping out babies engaging in sodomy ejaculating in the mouths of animals farting through bugles putting rifle barrels in mouths burning a palm tree stabbing someone in the back with a knife riding one's chattel bareback jamming sticks-up anuses, and so forth, just in case you didn't think we were looking at a theater of cruelty, in which the cruel speaks not only to the bestial, the vile, the vicious, the painful, the hateful, and so forth, but in which the cruel spooks, speaks in toe sense to the relentlessness of its self-depiction, the obstinacy with which the cruel repeats and shows itself to us as if it were merely a theater of marionettes, of black shapes doing shady things all under the direction of a sovereign. the the artist think about the obstinacy of the Holocaust again that took enormous obstinacy this dumb show as we might also call it is to come back to our central theme the abominability that is Walker's momo a double that keeps on obstinately repeating itself as if it were the master and Carol Walker its slave getting close to the end now It's time now to end with a return to the world of abomination. I'm interested in that tar-like shape down there as the abominable, and that this idea that there are things floating over it but that, uh, that look good you know, on the surface, but that underneath it seem to be really, really problematic. And that image seems quite interesting now in light of the oil spill and the gulf. It's time not to end with a return to the world of Obama-nation, Obama's Momo. For Obama, like Walker, is living out a life in which he too is haunted and persecuted by a Momo that has taken his body away and replaced it with something else, which as we know has to do with the monkeys that people manipulate as if these monkeys were marionettes on the Babette show, marionettes that are supposed to be viewed as Obama's doubles. What Obama has to suffer is the obstinacy of this substitution, and ultimately its gross stupidity, which is a function of a cruelty that seeks the limit both of the political and of where life becomes intolerable for the person who is being persecuted. These unwanted doubles are given him in place of the man that he is, as if a malign god had done to him what it had done to Arto, steal his body and mind and put a Momo in its place." And again, that's central to racism, and it goes back to Nazism, that these, these SS people were being gods, acting like gods. Obama le Momo, it turns up at right-wing rallies as an animal that is like a human, but not a human, an animal that can make signs like a human, but that doesn't know language, an animal that can show anger and joy like a human, but that doesn't have human emotions. In a discussion of La Fontaine's Lusange et le dauphin, The Monkey and the Dolphin, Daredo notes that the mo- of the monkey that it too is a double, a machine, a thing that reacts but that cannot respond, and that in place of response it merely reacts stupidly, bête Just as the monkey re- resembles a man but isn't one, the extreme right is telling us the president also resembles a president but isn't one. So that Sarah Palin could say, quote, what we need in office is a commander-in-chief, not a constitutional law professor lecturing from a lectern, unquote. In case you thought Palin wasn't invoking something like monkeys, guess again. Because Palin was trading on the commonplace, deprecating prejudice that teachers merely imitate in words what people of action actually do. We've all heard that before, haven't we? That the teacher, like the monkey, is a bet that badly, incompetently, stupidly resembles a person it is not. Like the monkey, the teacher of management is but a shadow of real managers. The teacher of politics, a shadow of real politicians. Obama may have been elected president, but in Palin's estimation, he's only the shadow of a commander-in-chief, and not the real thing, because like the monkey, he can only imitate badly. Another way of putting this would be to say that Obama is like some sort of silhouette, something that his famous tendency to show himself in profile only underscores, as if he were essentially the shadow of something, not the puppeteer, but its prosthetic support. And in politics, what is this obstinacy of this double, if not its obstinacy to appear, to show its face? I think that's essential to the political itself. This obstinacy of the politician who may be humiliated or whatever to actually show his face in front of other people. This obstinacy is as true of Obama as it has been for any American president all the way back to George Washington, who, as we know, was famously painted by Gilbert Stewart, a face rather mask-like, Enigmatic and unforthcoming. Already there, one can see a certain dumb obstinacy, which is nothing less than the presence that Stuart painted, the stupefying condition of presence that is so constitutive of presence itself. Yet, in the case of a figure like Washington, what we're seeing is not Baptiste, but something else, namely Stoicism, which has to do with that dimension of the political in which one holds one's ground for the sake of a good outcome that no one else may be able to see. But that comes about in any case. Abraham Lincoln may be an even better example of the president, a stoic rampart. And yet, isn't that too somewhat abominable? Consider how many people had to perish in the American Civil War for Lincoln's stoicism to yield the fruit of emancipation. This is the heroic side of abominability. This is Winston Churchill inspecting the troops on the shores of Normandy shortly after invasion. But is this heroic side of abominability going to typify the Obama presidency? Perhaps. Time will tell. Thank you. Uh, oh, sh- how I do, how do, you can
0: say that. I can say yeah. that. I just have just a couple of questions go, ahead. Yeah. go ahead. Um, firstly about how images can mark the limit of the political it seems that images and not just art but images yeah. and perhaps not even importantly art uh, can mark the limit of the political so, and hence you are showing Time. Yeah. Go back to
1: because, there if you want. Go ahead.
0: And that's because uh, these images, are, as you put it, are irrational and they can appeal to abomination, and as such are the abominations of the political. But at other times, in your presentation, it seems that art marks the limit of the political. So what I'm interested in is the relationship between image and art, and what the difference might be between how either of these mark the, uh, the limit of the political. So you say that, that Arto's um, comments about Balinese puppets, uh, as you put it, signify, signify through a violence which renders useless, useless any translation into logical or discursive language. And you think Walker's silhouettes do this as well? To some extent. Yeah. Right, so it's not clear to me whether you think art shows the, shows the limits of the political, or whether it's it's because it's image that art shows, that the marks the, limit of the political. And I think the difference is important, because if, if well, I'll see what you think whether whether it's uh, whether it's the image uh, or whether it's art because it's image. Which what's the difference between how they mark? well there, there are
1: different kinds of unspeakability, I suppose that you have there, and I think that the, the the art of course renders that unspeakability in a way that an image like that doesn 't This seems to have kind of a nice you know elderly lady with her sign that there 's something rather you know uh, problematic about that about the appearance and the reality that this 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 represents and the kind of ignorance that 's unself conscious of itself. You, you might say, there's a kind of cunning in this, this image that, that's really disturbing because you've got not just her, but millions of people like this uh, out there who would do this, I suppose if, if, if they could um, I've been to a couple of Tea Party rallies because I live in a part of the country that, that the US, it's Bible Belt I've talked to these, these folks and uh, you know, it, it's not like a racist is somebody who has great cunning that, that it sort of turns out that way uh, but they themselves are rather unself conscious about, about what they're doing. I think, in, that, in, the, in the case of, of art, in a sense, is that you have someone who's bringing out um, kinds of conflicts and, and contradictions and, and questions of unsayability in a way that's more overdetermined, you might say, uh, than something like this. It's something that you can speak to, write about. You can't write a long paper about this, I don't think. Uh, but that you can speak to, and write about, and, and engage with in ways, but in ways that I think don't process out the way that a lot of people in America would like it to process out in terms of that kind of politically correct pattern that, that people have about social contestation and the revision of stereotypes and all that that kind of thing, that, that sort of moral rectitude approach uh, to the work. I think that Kara Walker is much more vexed than that, which makes her much more interesting than someone like, like Toni Morrison. That, that's someone that you can fit easily, I think, within a framework of moral rectitude and decency and you know all the proper things that you're supposed to say in the classroom uh, that will work. But if you, you do this, uh, you have a very different kind of. Uh, 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 I didn't care Walker Not this, but, but Walker, you have a very different kind of uh, uh, material work, right, that you're working with. Right? Right, but it's very different to know where she's coming from. Maybe
0: the difference <coughs> is you're working with material, yeah, rather than something content like this content that this is kind of literal yes, exactly yeah. this even says B U M, not right. Obama. Yeah. Obama. Obama. And then she's underlining in red. I don't know what yes. you can see it. Yeah. The yes. word bum. Yeah. So yes. She, it's like she she can't get enough in this. Exactly. she's so like <laughs> over, Completely <laughs> overloading <laughs> the entire yes. image, she's trying to say as much as she possibly can. Exactly. <laughs> and then, yeah. if that, and this if this isn't enough. She holds this. as the reason why exactly. we should be sending yeah Obama back yes. to yes. Kenya. Yes. Yeah. So yes. for me, that's like an overdetermined content. Right. Whereas, uh, whereas. Kara Walker's art uh, absents itself mm-hmm. of content through its use of the silhouette, mm-hmm. so that it's it, that's a, the materialization of or of the image or dematerialization of content. So these are two very different, one might say, opposite ways of approaching mm-hmm. the political, and they mark perhaps they mark the political in two different ways, or, mark, or maybe they mark the, limit of the two different limits of the political. Right. So Walker's work, as I think she says, there's a public broadcasting service video interview and super on public broadcasting service and uh, the website. She talks about how her work is to do with absence, and I think that's not just absence of this or that content, but absence as such. And she absents her work of content. So when you say mm-hmm. images mark the limit of the. Mm-hmm. And then you also say mm-hmm. arthur 's work or mm-hmm. walker 's work mm-hmm. mark mm-hmm. the limits of the political it 's important I think to distinguish How either the two different, different ways way in, way in which yeah. they mark the same limit mm-hmm. or the two limits <coughs> mark okay. I, accept that. I have to think about that okay. mm-hmm. um, another question about antagonism. Ah. Okay. Um, and you're, you're counterposing it to opposition uh, opposition and antagonism it's kind of two well, and yeah, like yeah. Um <clears throat> you say and I quote you now insofar as politics requires sufficient objectification in order for people to come to rational agreements mm-hmm. antagonism reveals a limit beyond which the political cannot actually go mm-hmm. or cannot really go as you say so that, that's uh, uh, you're, you're, from you tip there, yeah. Yeah. and that's after Chantal Mouffe who says antagonism points to relations wherein the limits of every objectivity are shown Sorry. close close yeah. and she I don't know whether it's she or you italicized shown okay. in, that, in that sentence antagonism points to relations wherein the limits of every objectivity shown but both you and uh, Mouf both of these quotes seem to me to suggest that politics is a matter of agreement as you say insofar as politics requires sufficient objectification in order for people to come to rational agreements, antagonism reveals a limit beyond which the political cannot actually go. In other words, we have
1: to share the same reality in order to have a discussion that's fruitful. And share meaning agree. Fundamentally, I think we do. I think if you look, for example, at, at, at English history in the 17th century, what, what we have is really not quite a formed social sphere, public sphere in the 1640s. And you have people who are radically occupying very different kinds of positions and therefore can't come to, to any kind of agreement I would say there you are dealing with uh, a situation which was really quite dire and which led to violence I mm-hmm. think that, that, that would be my argument there that in order to have uh, something like like politics that, that, that's fruitful that we can live with parties have to sit down and have to agree on, on the same ser- shared reality Hamas has to agree that, that Israel is a legitimate state but if it doesn't do that nothing will ever happen there uh, Israel has to agree that it's, it can well, do all these awful things to Gaza, and so
0: on but and maybe then, we have politics because Hamas cannot agree that uh, Israel is a legitimate state I mean that's, why that, that's what calls for politics you would say that
1: we all agree we wouldn't have politics
0: <laughs> yeah exactly so it's not clear to me why but politics would, is about but agreeing.
1: that would argue that if we agreed we wouldn't all have a conflict of wills and I think we do have a conflict of wills even within a situation where, where, where we agree um, I, I think that, that's always going to be there. I think we're always going to have disagreement. From the simple, point, from the simple perspective, we have different points of view, or different takes, or different interpretations, or, or different ways of reading and looking at things. So like. maybe it's Maybe that's your dissensus business. I don't know. About yeah, that.
0: exactly. Right. Dissensus. <laughs> dissensus would be uh, someone like Voncier would come along and say, well, politics is about dissensus yes. because politics is about. What he would call a, like a gap in the sensible, the right. gap that we right. that in the sensible that right. we ostensibly share. Right. There are gaps such that politics is about those who can see and who can hear, and those right. who can't see and, yeah. and who can't right. hear, and those who have a right to see and a right to hear, or a right to say what is seen and a right to say what is right. heard, and those who don't have a right to see or to mm-hmm. hear or to mm-hmm. say what is seen or mm-hmm. what is heard. Mm-hmm. So that would be politics is that essentially dissensual in the democracy would be the, the incursion mm. of those without the right, right into that sphere from which they're forbidden from seeing or
1: from speaking or well, as we're saying the opposite where the media has taken over that central public sphere and pushed all of these groups out environmentalists and academics are sort of not in, this, in that sphere or are seen as, as fringe yeah, you right. might say. that's why Derely says that, there's
0: a, uh, that we have Islamic TV yeah. and then he says unfortunately that's Islam Christianizing itself yeah. for, for doing that yeah. Um, yeah. but, but, but so, so if that were the case then politics is, is rather more about dissensus, disagreement mm-hmm. rather than it is about agreement uh, yeah. and, <laughs> to, and, to, and to think that politics is about agreement mm-hmm. is forever to suspend any kind of political headway because you'll never get that agreement
1: I think that's too radical I, I, I think that the, the argument about a, a politics that I would say is a workable politics on which one can make headway uh, is, is one in which agreement gets, gets negotiated and, and worked out in temporary moments maybe you, know, you try one thing and it doesn't work uh, that opens up new disagreements you try something else I, I think what's, what's fundamental to, to that that argument maybe it's a Habermasian position I'm afraid I hold uh, which is the idea that, that, that politics <coughs> has to presuppose a common reality and, and a modicum of rationality uh, within that, that shared reality in order for people to, to come to, to sufficient agreement that, that, that you can function. If you say in, in an academic department, and I've been in these departments where people just hate each other and can't agree and, and, and are just shouting each other down at, at all moments your department just goes into the receivership you have not that because these people just don't want to accept the same framework of, of, of reality that, that to me is a, a very unworkable Thing. Sometimes you're in a situation where other people have views that you don't like, that you find intolerable, that you have to sort of swallow and put up with if you want to be part of that, that community and be productive mm-hmm. within that frame. I'm, I'm afraid that's just a very wishy-washy little thing on my part, but I, I'm afraid I I like, sort of come down on that. Well, there is one problem about that with respect to <coughs> us
0: because, because it reduces art to the level of of oh disagreement over yeah. shared content, like yeah. we agree on states of affairs, but yeah. we disagree on how to rectify right. them, that kind of yeah. thing, yeah. so it, it reduces politics to this level but if That's politics bad. is something like questions of as Rossier puts it, gaps in the sense of, yeah. or it's yeah. to do with how materiality is denied right. some and given others, or ways of perceiving and hearing is is. is are given some and not given Mm -hmm. others then art is intrinsically political because that's what art is, it's dividing up materiality and sensibility so whatever the content of art is, it would be intrinsically political intrinsically and the more it it tried to uh, propose a certain political content to itself the more an artwork Mm -hmm. proposes a certain political like a desired political outcome, for example, right. the less it's the le- the less art it is. As it, were. I mean, it, the the more it proposes a certain political content, mm-hmm. the less it, it it is art, and the less effective it is as art. Right. So that's the that's the
1: problem I find I see with that. Right. positive. becomes like a Romana right. club or something like that. Right, becomes I mean, very thin. As as an allegory, and the other part of what you're raising, I think, is very important from art. How can art, in a sense, push beyond its own limits if it has to always be in the state of happy agreement, realism, or something of that nature? Well, then you get the question: Why art? Why why do you need
0: art if it's always about uh, content? Well, well, maybe philosophy can give us that better than art can, or maybe even science can give us, or even politics can give us that better than art. So it it kind of disenfranchises the political.
1: Uh, worth about. well I mean there are dialectical moments actually in, in, in which reality speaks back you might say uh, to, to art and, and, and to the public sphere and so on we're seeing that now clearly with, with the ecology I and mean, for years uh, you know, for centuries we've been exploiting nature and our nature's talking back to us and uh, we'd better deal with that or, or we're in trouble I mean there's a dialectical moment there that we're think those kinds of things begin to intrude on, on, on much of this. But the, certainly I think within art, there's always that question of how do you, you know, take an oppositional stance, what do you do with, a, with an artist who's not considered a legitimate artist, and all that, that type of thing. That, that certainly comes, I think, to play into that uh, into that issue. Well, what do we do with someone like Walker, uh, who in a sense isn't a politically correct artist in many ways, who isn't sort of your typical person that you can easily manage and cultivate. Uh, again, in FRM, uh, in America, what do you do with Mary Baraka? Uh, who is anti-Semitic, you know what I mean? And a lot of that work is pretty edgy as well. Uh, brilliant work, but politically very edgy. It's things that people don't want to teach. They don't want to touch it. Uh, it's too toxic for, for people to, to deal with. Uh, people don't want to teach Ishmael Reed. They don't want to deal with a book like Noembo uh, They're much more comfortable dealing with Alex Walker. You see, you have those issues. You also have the issue in America, quite frankly, uh, where the departments are happier uh, uh, hiring uh, females uh, uh, minorities, they're not very happy about uh, hiring male minorities. That that gets that gets a little more frightening for people. Uh, so you have all those kinds of issues, I suppose. Playing. playing escape the escape. The escape. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> <Not> her <bad>. <laughs> <laughs> want her back? Don't
0: see that. Okay. Because Carl yeah. Walker mm-hmm. says about her work that. It lends itself she uses these because it lends itself to the avoidance of the subject. Sure. She said. Yeah. So it avoids any kind of subject matter, right. or at least right. uh, yeah. she she wants to make that claim, but at the same time she gives the kind of causal account of her art in the sense that she you know read Gone with the Wind and began, began to get interested right. in a kind of robotic economy right. in that in right. that book yeah, and, and and this you know prompted her to to, to begin making the sorts of Does. But still, the silhouette form of the image or of the the work is one that lends itself to absence or to to the uh, displacement of any kind of of content. Are there any, maybe there are some questions from, from yeah.
2: Oh, mm-hmm. Um.
1: that this paper isn't complete really and, and it needs some, some readings or, or interpretations or some close work with, with some of this work to talk about it. So this is all in a sense working around that Yet I haven't really come to the point of really looking at a major work uh, or an installation and, and talking about what, what that's like. I mean one of the things that's important is the panorama and the fact that it's around you. The fact that you're dealing with epic fragments in, in lots of ways. That you're dealing with figures that, that read and don't read, that make sense and don't make sense, uh, that are stereotypical and that are non-stereotypical. Uh, so there are many of those kinds of things that one's going to have to look at, and, and certainly I think that the formal element is, is, is a very important one. And I think the whole question of, of the spatial relationship of the individual in, in the panorama, around oneself, is, is, is very significant. Some of these works are rather high up on the wall, they, they sort of, you know, are coming down, down at you in, in, in certain kinds of ways. So there's a phenomenology of that experience. You see, that, that's, that's there. And the question, you are dealing with shadows, that you're filling this in... Um, I was teaching this, I, I guess, in, in, in class, and, and many of the students were trying to figure out what race are these figures, which is very interesting. Is this a white or is this a black person? You see what I mean? Uh, what, what does that tell you about, about that, that nature of just basic apprehension of, of, of those images? but but I think certainly the the formal uh, uh, qualities are are, are very significant and how she recycles 19th century imagery and and obviously works against that goes up against the current of it uh, uh, becomes a very significant uh, kind of thing there's also a kind of poetics of the image that that you really look at these images in relation to each other and they kind of resonate back and forth like, like they're poetic lines you see what I mean? and then the question is are we looking at a history you know, do, we do, uh, do we do Louis Marin and look at a historical uh, genre painting or have we got something else that, that we're dealing with the kind of dismantling of the historical genre painting I think all those things have to be looked at uh, uh, in, in relation I also think that the work of Ana Mangueta uh, a Lat- uh, Latina Cuban artist is very important because she does a lot of things with the body too burning the body and all those kinds of things and used her own body in, 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 in a lot of kind of uh, site specific work uh, um, in in uh, Iowa. Uh, <clears throat> That's very interesting work too, because it, it seems also very destructive. A lot of blood in that, but it's very affirmative in a way that this isn't. But she also worked with, with shadows. It would be interesting to counterpoint that kind of work. I'm, I'm actually a comparatist, I'm very interested in comparing things. Uh, the Arto Walker is just one way of comparison that I think is more fruitful than the politically correct reading uh, of the work. But, but I certainly take your point about the formal dimensions. it's not just just, you you can't just call it the formal
0: it's like the formal elevated to a level where the form content falls away so even that that, that, that silhouetting of black or white you wouldn't get the question of is it it black without that silhouette you just wouldn't get it if you actually showed black and you showed white you wouldn't have the question is it white or is it black so it's It's not just formal. Mm. Uh, there was a question.
3: Yeah, hi. Yeah. Um, why do you think Kara Walker's work has been pushed so heavily um, to be, you know, she's one of the most successful Afro American um, artists. And considering how offensive it is mm. um, to a lot mm. of viewers, mm. is it just, in a way, like an anti, like a ironic statement? For it to be pushed by the art world to be so successful oh. well, that's I, mean, an I, think we, I know and many people
1: write about it's <coughs> complicated and, and, and it may be a bit vexing that, that she's had a big showing in Germany. Mm-hmm. I have a rather large catalog of her work that was mm-hmm. done in, in you know what I'm saying um, So you know you have to yeah. sort of think about that. why are the Germans so interested in this, in this kind of work? Uh, and, and, and what does it mean that the MacArthur Foundation decided to give her uh, very young you know mm-hmm. uh, an, an award and, and genius, yeah. genius yeah. grant uh, so I, I mean I, I don't have a great answer for you there I mean I, I think obviously people uh, want to be open to, and be inclusive and, and, and obviously this work when you see it is very powerful mm-hmm. I must say that uh, I first came across it in uh, the early 2000s I was in, in LA Los Angeles and it's actually just a, a small work, but it was more powerful than anything in that exhibit, and there were work by some pretty major people there. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So I think visually, if you know a lot about visual art, and you're used to yeah. seeing visual art, and you look at this work, mm-hmm. so it's overwhelming. Yeah. And, it's a, and you know it's disturbing. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that there are things that aren't really right with it, ethically, in the sense mm-hmm. of what this should be. Mm-hmm. And that really makes it much more interesting, in a way, that those conflicts...
3: But is it pushed because it is like in an ironic statement because it's more interesting rather than, you know, thinking of it on a, more a, on a deeper way, you know, thinking about the implications of, you know, because there's loads of Afro-American artists, yes. Rennie Cox, you right. know, why have they pushed, I'm not saying, I just want to know. Because someone like Faith
1: ringle is really quite superficial yeah. at the end of the day.
3: Okay.
1: Or Betty Saar. Isn't that right? I mean... But
3: that's an older generation. That's an older the generation. Ge- of Carla yes. Walker. Why in mm-hmm. particular is Carla Walker being focused Right. Considering, you know, the, you know, the tensions and everything. I would like also offer part. the thing <laughs> that
1: that because there is that there is a, a kind of unique style there. You might say, or that she's okay. so immediately recognizable yeah. okay. with that with that shadow word okay. in a way that some others yeah. may not be. That that certainly has important. to play into it. Okay. You know, it's her. Yeah. You see it, ah, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know what I mean? It's immediately yeah. recognizable. This is kind of logo effect in a way, okay. which has its downside. Over time, yeah. No, I
3: hadn't I thought about it in that way, but just considering, and I think this epic scale
1: yeah. is kind of mm-hmm. interesting,
3: okay.
1: and that you're immersed in it. Mm-hmm. Think of our cave paintings or something mm-hmm. It's a bit like that.
0: Any, any further questions? No, I, mm-hmm. I didn't really have a question. Just sort of, I just thought it was interesting how. Well, uh, clearly shadow puppetry
1: is eliminated from from behind her work tends to be projected onto walls, or you have paper which is, which is glued onto walls, and, but the walls are very stark white. you get the impression that the illumination is coming from from behind them but yeah. I that contrast is very is, is very strong I think what what a section i didn 't read on it that does interest me is the relationship of Asian art, which nobody mentions you know they 're usually working in the African American, you know, context, and they're not rethinking about Asia and how widespread shadow puppetry is there and shadow figures and what that could all mean. It's interesting that our have thought about that, by the way. Mm-hmm. I mean thinking about about these Balinese shadows and comments of his little essay, famous one on that. Um so I think that's yeah, worth pushing a bit, you know the, the relationship between the puppeteer yes. and the respondent is looking at the right.
0: That's right. She uses overhead projectors, which uh, project from behind the viewer. So when the viewer looks, at the, like if you, mm-hmm. like right now, if I look at the silhouette, like that, I'm, I become a silhouette. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I become part of what I'm uh, mm-hmm. looking at. So it's not simply the the. It's it's sh- shadow on the wall. Yeah, yeah. it's not. Mm-hmm. It's it's not simply the puppet. The the, the, the things are under the mm-hmm. control of the. I should not a puppeteer because if you, as soon as you realize this, you become the scene puppeteer. And as soon as you become, you realize you're part of what you're looking at. you your own actions through a certain kind of volition change. But also, you're subject to the fact that you're being silhouetted. So then you are under the control of the puppeteer. So yeah. it's both these things. But if would propose a thing that
1: Well, it's interesting in, 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 uh, in Asian shadow puppet uh, theater, in some uh, places there are, there are people in front of the screen and some are behind. I think in, in Indonesia you can choose whether to be in front or behind. In Sri Lanka they have shadow puppetry where there's no audience, which is quite interesting. It's just a ritual that, 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 that people do. Other yeah. But there's no audience for that and so I think that, that whole question of where you stand <coughs> relation to the screen and, and all that is, is a very complex mm-hmm. business I'd like to read up more on and, and get, get a better understanding but again I think it relates to this question about the, fo- the formal qualities there and, yeah. and being yeah. in the room being in a, in a panorama and how that's, how that's experienced and, and, and processed I think it's very different to, to be in that situation than to see these works in books mm-hmm. that, that, that's a different or
0: that she does make books pop she up, makes pop books on. pop
1: up books yes yes yeah there's
0: something
4: quite irrational about, about this image there yeah, and i was i was sort of uh um, irrational They're not really within that rational space where you could have a rational debate. Mm-hmm. Walker's work is so highly constructed that actually that's exactly what you could have a rational debate. I, I don't know, can you say something about that, or is that, is that totally um,
1: beside your point? I, I don't know if, well, I think there are rational things about her work that, that, that are clearly, and that may be beyond debate. Or, or, or beyond understanding in a way and I think that turns up in, in, in other forms of art as, as, as well to, to, to some extent I, I don't know if you agree with that. but I, I think like for example to take a totally different kind of work if I have to look at a painting by Brock, the, the thing that always strikes me about Prague is the surface of the, of the, of the painting I, I can't explain why that surface is so resonant that, that I'm looking at there's something inexplicable about the nature of this, the skin of the painting as it were when, when I look at a brock. I don't have that feeling when I'm looking at a Picasso, but with a brock, it's, it's, it's very clear. So it seems to me that there are certain ty- certain kinds of art. These, these various kinds of things that have a very strong effect on a person, they may not be able to necessarily rationalize. You know, I mean, I don't know, if you debate about that kind of thing? I, I, I don't know. Um, I to know about the color blue and Renoir.
4: Right? I mean, for me, <laughs> Warhol, in a way, kind of resonates with that I think quite well. oh. of iconographic, it's Instead of oh. iconography, you know, it's 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 uh, it's doing similar things, but coming from a very different perspective. And again, it's kind of it's highly commodified. It's you know, it's, it's mm. extremely commercial. just like the work. Mm. Mm. And it's got that sort of, it's got that
0: rationality. And it's so highly constructed. It's it's mm. very intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, are you saying then that the more constructed it is the more rational it becomes because the the less constructed it is the more real it is the more irrational it is and the more impossible it is to have any kind of reasonable discussion about things
3: well,
4: somewhere in there yeah, I think there is something in there, yes because if push this bit button (laughs) 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 um,
0: uh, about Kara Walker's work if everything is kind of reduced let's say that it's about gesture for example it's about gesture, like, a, like the Marinette theatre, it's about gesture. You reduce it to that level where the gesture becomes the world, becomes, the, the world becomes constructed of gesture. The less it's, it seems to me, I don't know whether you agree with this, but the less it, it, the, the gestures seem to have the, the force of signification that the gestures might have in the real world where they are just but one part of that world. So the less they, are, they have that kind of force of signification. So you have to work out everything again. You have to work out what all these gestures means again. All the oppositions by which you might want to make sense of those gestures in the real world, as it were, where the gesture is just one part, fall away. If the world is gesture so you have to work them all out again. And that working it out again is, I take it, where the rationality comes in. You have to kind of work these things out again. They're not given in advance these distinctions, these oppositions are not given in advance, you can't fall back on them in the way of something like this, not this the image was there before it does fall back is that what you
1: yeah alright I, I, would, I would think this is quite different from Warhol from um, I, I don't see much compatibility there um, in this and, uh, I mean, one thing I see here, for example, I mean, I would immediately think of Rembrandt's Bosch, particularly with that boat business here. Um, it's, it, it, it feels almost, you know, like the, the world of the insane. Could, that would be a resonance, you know, kind of historical resonance for me in, lo- in looking at a work like that. And I have to puzzle that that, that through. Orwell um, never really deals, does he, with, with this kind of this kind of interrelation of all these, these various kinds of images, I and mean, he, he's, he's really famous, well his mouths are great, of course, and, and of course there what you have is that that business of print culture uh, mixed with abstract expressionism to some extent, those those incredible brush strokes that he gets in there, uh, in, in, in those works, and there's really something very in, 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 intense about them as, as, as portraits, I, I think. Uh, here, I think you have something very different going on, something very much more like narrative, you, you might say. Whereas in, in, in Warhol, I always got that feeling I'm closer to the world of Luigi or something like well, that. Well, she
4: did make films, of course. Well, he yeah, did it's make film, film, but it's films, but of people it's sleeping. It's yeah, yeah, so the screen tests are interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah, And in, in fact, she made, she's made a film, film too. too. She was heavily influenced by Warhol. I, mean, I, I know. Awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. But but I think the work, to me, it reads very differently what looks very differently than the world of Warhol. He, con- he was very controversial, right? Who? The Warhol. was very controversial. At the time, you mean? Yeah. Well, Everything we all laughed at him. We just died laughing at L.A. when it came out with those boxes. They were a scream. stuff <laughs> <Except laughs> wasn't taken seriously.
3: Yeah,
1: but in Europe it was. Well, yeah, perhaps. But I, I think <laughs> in America when it, when it came out, I mean, we just thought that stuff was, was really funny. Cornflake boxes? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, it, it, it was almost a joke, I think, at, at the time. I mean, over time, this has all changed.
0: Radically.
1: Fair, I, I think so, I agree. You know, very flat and, and, and very withdrawn and, and, and all that kind of thing. And the other thing that's interesting about Warhol in relation to this, I guess we only talk about, you know, the art. The, the, the issue of black in, in, in Warhol is very interesting. If you look at the serograph of Kafka that he did, there are a lot of different tonalities of black in that thing that's an amazing uh, serograph that he made the, the, the technique of that is, is, is really fascinating and, and it, you just worry about breathing on it, that you'll destroy it there's something very ephemeral about, about his use of, of, of black and, and, and so on in, in, in the work I think there are those kinds of issues uh, that, that, that are there
0: can I ask you another question? Yeah. why do you call at the end to, right towards the end of your paper, uh-huh. you equate the sovereign and the artist you say um, it's actually quite on sentence in fact it goes back half a page I can't (laughs) read that a couple of those yeah the the relentlessness of its self-depiction the 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 obstinacy with which the cruel repeats and shows itself to us as if it were merely a theatre of marionettes of black shapes doing shady things all under the direction of a sovereign the artist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Why do you invite the sovereign with the artist then?
1: Well, um, because they, at, at some point, simplistically, I mean, the, the artist is all controlling over the over, over this work. I mean, she's basically telling people where to put up, you know, these these, these figures and so on. And she has a kind of, in terms of the Whitney, you know, exhibition, this kind of mastery over over the work. So I think the issue of the beast and the sovereign that that there is that sense. Uh, where, where the artist has that, that position of the one who determines it all. Okay, but Ar- yeah.
0: you're, you're speaking about Arto and Walker in the same breath as yeah. in this yeah. passage. Yeah. But Arto says in, uh, that if you, if, you, um, if you want to reintroduce the, the gesture onto the stage, yeah. you have to kill the sovereign, yeah. kill God, right. parasite. Right. The artist has to kill the head chop off. The they have to do, to do in that order that you, in order that you displace mm-hmm. the tyranny of the text, mm-hmm. or in other words, anything that comes before what that which is said or written before right. the stage. Right. So that that kind of that aspect of cruel, that necessary aspect of cruelty, of right. killing, murder, right. the first gesture has to be murder, right. in order that you displace from from out of your way. Right that which comes before, that which is written, that which is given, decided in advance, then we can, then we the, can do that. The
1: sovereignty of a certain voice comes in there anyway. I think, I think that's the problem. You can, you can project to do that, and, and then you get the return of sovereignty anyhow. I, I don't think you can actually affect it in, in, in absolutely. as Or as you can wish to do that, you can wish to lose control. Think about Cage, for example. You know, losing all control yeah. And there's it's nothing, yeah there's nothing more recognizable well, they, than a piece of music like John Kane I know but you know I, I think there's always that problem of the, the, the sublation of a return of, of sovereignty in the work at, at some point do we have other questions?
0: If if, if there are no more questions, then then we call it a day. Uh, The third and final lecture, a week hence, by Jonathan uh, Blonsky, here this time is about an hour and a half earlier. Next week. Uh, Thank you very much.
3: Thank you. (laughs)